Our scripture this morning comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. This continues our series we've been doing. There are seven letters um, sent from Jesus to churches uh, throughout these first couple chapters of Revelation. Uh, This will conclude next week uh, as we move into Lent. But hear now God's word from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you will give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Specifically this morning, we pray that you will give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church in Philadelphia, as well as what that means to us here in Georgetown, Kentucky in 2019. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts bring you glory. Amen. So this morning, we're going to ask a series of three questions. If you've heard me preach before, you know that I like to invite people to open their Bibles and follow along and typically go through verse by verse. I do invite you to follow along, but we're going to jump around a little bit in this verse and let these three questions kind of structure our time together. The first question I want to ask is, what is the story? You know, this, this letter is being written Uh, through this vision of of John and sent to this church in Philadelphia. Um, But this is a people 2,000 years ago in history, and they have a story. And so I want to start with the question of context. What's going on within this church that this letter is written to? And one of the first things we learn about this church in verse 8, the second part of verse 8, is that they have 
but a little bit of power. The letter says, I know that you have but little power. So there's some sense in which this church in Philadelphia is is somewhat powerless. They're lacking some sort of power. And some scholars, because of some of the history of that area, believe that this is, is like a social status that the Christians in Philadelphia in this time are lacking. That they are the social outcasts at this time in this place. And the power that they lack is any sort of influence on society around them. And so the letter says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So we're told two things about this church in Philadelphia. They lack power, but that they're faithful. That they lack influence in the society and the time in which they live, and there are pressures on them to abandon God's word and to abandon the hope they have in Christ. But they are remaining faithful because they, in the words of Jesus, they have kept my word and not denied my name. Another part of their story we find in the following verse in verse 9 when we hear about the synagogue in the area. It is called the synagogue of Satan. Now, the synagogue or the Jewish temple, the Jewish place of worship uh, in this area, is thought to have been kind of corrupted in a way. See, at this point in time in the Jewish history, uh, the Jews were allowed to exist and exhibit some power over their people as long as they didn't step too far out of line with Roman rule. And as long as they didn't evangelize. And so it appears that this synagogue in Philadelphia is made up of people who do have some social influence and power, but they have not kept the word and have denied Jesus' name and are therefore called a synagogue of Satan. Jesus said that this synagogue of Satan is made up of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are lying. And so the Christians in the area that have remained faithful are kind of contrasted with this synagogue of Satan, these people who are denying Jesus' name. And so that's kind of the story in this time and place at this church, that, that, that these people that are being written to are, are somewhat powerless but have remained faithful. And this letter that they are receiving, you know, a few weeks ago I, I preached on a letter that was the whole thing negative. There was nothing positive to say about the people. This one's the other way around. While, while they have little power, everything about them that the letter is written to is positive. They are enduring patiently. And that's their story. And then they receive this letter. The second question that I want to ask about this letter 
is what does it reveal about Jesus? What does this letter reveal about who Jesus is and what he does? So two aspects of Jesus. What does it reveal about who he is as a, as a person, as a God, as a Messiah, and, and what is he doing in the text? <coughs> and it starts out by saying in the very title, all of the seven letters that are written in the first few chapters of Revelation begin with some sort of title for Jesus. In this one, it said, these are the words of the Holy One, the True One. So he's holy and he's true. But then we get this weird phrase. Who has the key of the house of David. Who has the key of the house of David. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. Notice key is singular. There aren't multiple keys. About every other week, Either Pastor Greg or I are very thankful that there are multiple keys to our office. Because we always lock ourselves out. There's only one key here. And it's clear who is holding the key. It's the one writing the letter who John reveals to be Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask the question, well, what is the key of David? What is the key of David? Do you know what the best commentary on the Bible is? The very best. A lot of commentaries have been written on the Bible. The very best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The best way to understand something from Scripture is to look everywhere else in Scripture and see where else is this used. The key of David is not something that's spoken of often in Scripture. But in Isaiah chapter 22 we get a really unique passage. I'm going to read it for us, and it will become abundantly clear that the writer of Revelation has this verse in mind when writing this letter. This is Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 22. On that day I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him. I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and no one shall shut. He shall shut, and no one shall open. And so what we get in Revelation chapter 3 is almost a direct quote from Isaiah 22. So the author clearly had this in mind. So Isaiah chapter 22 would have been written sometime in the 700s B.C. At a, at a time in Israel's history when there was some um, contentiousness with the Assyrian threat that was always present. And so Eliakim is a priest and he becomes the one that is entrusted with the key to the house of David, or the temple. He's the one entrusted with the key, and even called 
a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem or a leader of the worshiping community. He's given authority and power because he holds the key. And so now in Revelation chapter 3, by making reference to this Isaiah 22 passage, Jesus is saying, I have the key to the house of David. I hold the key of David. The key to the church. Then it says that he has the power. The one who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. Whatever he does will be accomplished. Much has been said this week about the church. Specifically, the United Methodist Church. As many of you know, the General Conference is the governing body of the denomination. In the aftermath of the conference's vote in favor of the traditional plan, there are many questions about what this means for the church. While it is true that the General Conference is the only governing body that can speak for the institution of the United Methodist Church, there is another who ultimately holds the keys to our doors. Only he can open and shut. Here at Georgetown First, we will continue to be a community that seeks to love all people, and welcome all people to his church, to this church and to this table. Because this is not our church and this is not our table. Our communion liturgy reminds us each and every time we take communion that it is Christ our Lord who invites us to his table. Whatever he opens, no one can shut. And then in the letter in verse 8, we're told that there is an open door for this church in Philadelphia. Jesus says, I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. That no one has the power to shut. And think of it in the context of this worshiping community that lacks power and, and influence in the society. They're being told there is a higher power that has more authority than anyone else. And they're also being told that that person that has the higher authority is opening a door for them. And that no one not even those of the synagogue of Satan, have the ability to shut it. This is an act of Jesus Christ. So when we ask, what does this letter reveal about Jesus? It reveals that he has the authority and power over the church. And we're also given a series of I will statements in this letter. If you're getting deja vu, it's because in a lot of the letters, we get a series of I will statements. And you know what's really cool about that? 
This is really cool. I always forget to look at the choir. This is really cool. That in these letters, it's an emphasis to let the churches know that Jesus is acting. Jesus is not a passive observer of the church because they contain these I will statements. Look in verse 9. There's a little bit of a run-on sentence. He gets back to the point after a sidebar. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. One of the things this passage reveals about Jesus is that he's going to flip the power structure. See, there are those that have power in the synagogue of Satan who are lying about their faithfulness to God. And there are those that lack power but are faithful. And Jesus says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus flips this power structure. He comes and he sides with the powerless and those who lack power. And then we get another I will statement uh, in verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I will keep you from the hour of trial. It's really important for us to understand what Jesus is saying by keep you. Because this word doesn't just mean I'm going to like take you out of it and keep you away from it. Have you all heard the expression to keep house? Most of the young people in the room are like, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> it's an older way of saying to, to maintain a household, uh, to keep it clean, or to um, make sure there are rules in place for those who live there. This word for keep means to maintain. It doesn't just mean to prevent you from experiencing what's going on. Jesus is not saying that you are going to be removed from any time of trial or temptation or persecution because these people are already experiencing persecution. But for Jesus to keep them means he's going to maintain them. He's going to be with them. He's going to keep them through this time of trial that the whole world experiences. And then we get a little bit of a break from the I will statements and we get an I am statement. Jesus says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. 2,000 years removed from the New Testament often makes Christians look at passages like this and say, what does that mean? Because we read this and we automatically think of the second coming of Christ. And we think the early church must have thought that at any moment he was coming back. And here we are 2,000 years later still reading verses like, I am 
coming soon. There are a few different ways that we can try to understand what Jesus means by this. One is to simply acknowledge that our time is not God's time. He does not operate within time in the same way that we do. Another way to understand this is to think about the multiple comings of Christ to people. And that perhaps the church in Philadelphia did experience Christ coming to them. That it's not just a far in the future thing, but for us is something that has already taken place for them. I am coming soon also brings with it the same idea that the other scriptures that talk about coming like a thief in the night. Because soon, that Greek word that we translate here as soon also just means quickly. <clears throat> that it will happen in a flash. We pray, come Lord Jesus to our church. Come soon, come quickly. In verse 12, we get another I will statement as we continue to look at the action of Jesus in this passage. Jesus says, I will make you a pillar. He's going to accomplish something within that church in Philadelphia. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. So these believers that are on the outside looking in of the synagogue in Philadelphia are experiencing this power structure flipped on its head. And not only is Christ coming up and siding with the powerless, but he's saying, now I'm going to choose you and make you a pillar of the church, a pillar in the temple of my God. And then lastly, Jesus says, I will write on you the name of my God. Essentially, I will claim you as mine. Jesus has a lot of actions in this verse that reveals a lot about who he is. The third and final question I want to ask about this passage together, after we've asked what is the story and what does it reveal about Jesus the last question has to do with verse 13, which says, Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so what I want to ask, what is the Spirit saying to the church in Philadelphia? And through this letter, what is the Spirit saying to us here at Georgetown first? And first, if it is true that Jesus sides with those who lack power and social privilege, then one of the things the Spirit says to me is that those of us who do have some sort of power or social privilege should leverage it to care for those without. Throughout Scripture, it is clear that God cares for the weak and powerless. He cares for the widows. He cares for the orphans. He cares for the slaves. He cares for the social outcasts. 
let us join in with the activity of God and care for the powerless around us. And another thing that the Spirit is saying to this church and is saying to me is to patiently endure in keeping God's word. To patiently endure in keeping God's word. This could mean going through trials, but ultimately Jesus promises to keep those who patiently endure. And then lastly, the Spirit really impressed upon me this week to remember his title here in this letter and to remember who ultimately holds the keys and the power to open and close doors. I'm going to uh, invite us to close with a time of prayer. And in this time of prayer, I'm going to invite anyone who would like to to join me at the altar. And our prayer will simply be that God will open doors for us here. That God will open doors within the community of Georgetown to come alongside the powerless and the weak and to reveal God's love for them. I invite anyone who would like to to come join me at the altar. God, I confess to you the times that I have thought of the church as our church or my church and not your church. God, we pray for daily reminders that you are the one that holds the keys to open or close. God, we pray that you will be opening doors for us at Georgetown first to seek those in society who are powerless, to reveal your love to them. God, it is only your gospel that brings with it the power to transform lives. We pray for that to take place in our hearts as well as those we come into contact with. God, we pray that you will open the doors of this church, that this will be a place of transformation, that this will be a place where people come to know you and your creative activity in our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Do a mighty work in us and through us. Open our doors. In Jesus' name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father, we pray. Amen.